Hey, Bree, how you doing? Hey, good and pretty good. How are you, Mario? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Hey, I was psyched to see you and Cameron climbing last week. How did uh, your session go? It was pretty good. Haven't been on ropes in a while. I feel like I just need to start training a little bit more again. What was that hangboard you mentioned to us? Uh, oh, it was the flashboard. And I think it's the best one because you can use it indoors. You can use it outdoors. It doesn't really matter where you use it. You can hang it on stuff. You don't have to mount it to your wall. So it's pretty dope. Oh, that's great, because I feel like I can't put holes anywhere in my house, but yeah, that's awesome. Where can I get it? Uh, you can go to Tension's website, and then whenever you do, just drop in the promo code TENSIONSAS20. You'll get 20% off. You'll support the podcast, and yeah, but then they'll get it to you on the quickness. Oh, sick. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Are you guys climbing again this weekend? Yeah, I think we'll hit up uh, maybe the new... Rope gym down in the design district. Oh, uh, the new movement is finally open. Nice. Finally, after our long wait. I know. That's a long wait, but I'm excited. Well, I'm looking forward to climbing with both of you guys, and I'll see you guys this weekend. Yeah, I'll catch you later. Bye. Bye. Friends and enemies, lovers and haters, welcome to Sends and Suffers podcast. I am your host, Mario Stanley. If you haven't already, please follow, like, and subscribe to Sends and Suffers podcast. Every bit counts, and we would love to hear from you. So take a moment to leave a comment. These go a long way and help others know what they're getting into and how good this show is. If this is one of your favorite podcasts, consider becoming a Patreon. For as little as $5 a month, you are investing in Sense and Suffers podcast, and it's like buying your boy a taco, hanging out, and getting to know the good good that is coming your way. Monthly recaps, early show releases, and all the other cool things that we do. Thank you so much for listening to Sends and Suffers Podcasts. Today's episode is with Michelle Patton. Michelle is a paraclimber, coach, educator, and someone I've had the opportunity to mentor. I hope you enjoy today's episode so much, as much as I love and care for this person deeply. I've learned a lot watching her become the head coach of our paraclimbing community and watching her just blossom as an athlete. And I couldn't be more proud of her. And that's why I think this story of a DFW climber is so perfect for Sentence and Suffers podcast because you're going to figure out how she didn't start here, got here, but is thriving here. Please enjoy the episode with Michelle Patton. And as always, like, follow, and subscribe. All right, let's get into it. We'll start this the way we always do. Who are you? Where are you from? And what is your connection to the outdoors or adventurous sports? Or what is it that you like to do? Yeah, so I'm Michelle Patton. I grew up in the Seattle area, suburb Smamish, Washington. Moved down to DFW for college at UT Dallas. I currently live in Frisco, Texas, but I work and do most of my stuff out of Plano. Um, I've got a lot of connections to the outdoors. Growing up in Seattle, that was something that was always very accessible to me. So my brother and I, instead of going to church all, every Sunday, we went and we went hiking. Oh, and awesome. that was a big thing between him and I, my senior year, right before I left and moved down to Dallas. I spent a lot of time just exploring the Pacific Northwest. Then when I started college down here is actually when I started climbing. And I have some of those regrets of not starting climbing when I lived somewhere where it was all around me. Um, but that's become a huge essential part of my life. Um, I started climbing about four years ago, started coaching about two years ago, and gone pretty much all in in that world and been competing, been coaching, spent a little time guiding up in Alaska. So nice. got a lot of connections all over the country with regard to that. No, I knew you were climbing up there, but I didn't realize you were actually guiding up there too as well with what service? 
Um, I was up with Micah Guides um, on the Matanuska Glacier up there. So I didn't do a whole lot of guiding on the ice, but I went on a lot of trips with the guides and assisted. Um, I was part of their logistics team, though. So everything behind the scenes that a guiding company needs to do to stay afloat, that's what I took care of. That makes a lot of sense. And did you do sports before climbing? Yeah. So in high school, I was two-sport varsity athlete. I played softball. I played soccer. was recruited to play softball in college. Ended up choosing somewhere to go to college where that was not the path I went on, uh, just because scholarship money and where I could afford to go to school. And then my original plan was, okay, I'll go. I'll walk on, still play. And then medical things cropped up and was not able to even pass a physical to play NCAA. And so started looking for other avenues for athletics. And that's kind of what led me into the climbing world. Fair enough. Um, When did these medical things kind of segue in? Because we'll get into, I guess maybe it'd probably be better to kind of jump, jump a little forward and then jump backwards. So congratulations. You just recently won first place here in Texas in para, para nationals. Uh, what was your category? Uh, I competed in open too. So it's like open enrollment for people who identify as having a disability for onsite grade of five ten to five twelve. Okay. Yeah. And, um, it, and then, yeah. And for everybody who doesn't know, like she said, open enrollment is just coming in and going for that. Um, is there another category that you traditionally always get put into? So I haven't gone through the classification process, but I would normally fit into RP3, which is for range and power of and mo- of motion. Um, and it's basically, a, RP is a catch-all category for a lot of different neurological impairments that affect range of motion, affect power, all of that. Um, and so for me, I've got neurological impairment on my right side. It affects my sensation in my right hand and foot and also some of my coordination and range of motion there. So that's kind of what puts me in that category. I chose not to do classification this year for a lot of reasons. Part of it is it's a whole process with medical paperwork and very, it's very involved. And I know a lot of people had some negative experiences regarding it and it wasn't something I wanted to worry about this year. I just want to be able to go down, have a good time, do my best competition this year and then worry about classification going forward if that's what I decide to do. That makes sense. Um, no, okay, so I want to jump back to this later, but now to go back in time. Um, when did the, what was the catalyst and when did the medical stuff start arriving? It started when I was in high school, but wasn't anything that really stood out. Like, because I was competing at a national level in softball. And when we do conditioning, I was having just some heart issues where I'd get really lightheaded or start blacking out. And we're like, this doesn't match up to how I should be performing. And then come college, started actually just having syncopal episodes where I'd just pass out entirely. We didn't know why. Um, And then started figuring some of that out. Some of it just resolved on its own. And then the neurological stuff happened about like two months after I started climbing in June of 2019. I had an instant where I pretty much lost all feeling in my right side um, and all like fine motor skill and stuff. I was just out with friends and, you know, didn't want to worry anyone, just kind of ignored it. And then it just, it d- didn't go away. It just progressed. So, uh-huh. yeah. Did you ever figure out exactly what happened? We don't know. Still something that's kind of up in the air. We go back and forth between do I have MS? Do I have vascular issues causing clots in my brain? So. It sounds kind of strokish. Was yeah. it like a stroke? We. It's possible. Okay. Part of the issue was I did not go see a doctor when I should have. That's so enough. Yeah, they were enough. like, we don't actually know. Um, oh, yeah. wow. Okay. And so now, and that kind of per- started persisting in college is yeah. really when it kind of peaked. And so I guess, did you start climbing before that happened? Just before that. Yeah. So like I started climbing in March of 2019 or maybe early April, and then that started happening in mid-June. Okay. And were you, like, nervous to continue climbing, or was it immediately like, no, I'm going to keep doing this? It was – I wasn't nervous. I was more frustrated. Like, I would get on the wall because I started climbing immediately after, and I'd get on the wall, and my climbing partner, Christian, who came down to Nationals with me, great friend of mine, he would be like, hey, just push off your right side. I'm like, I 
don't know how to do that anymore. It was just like retraining. How do I use that side of my body on the wall, especially when I can't feel what I'm doing? Um, so getting past that frustration part was a big step for me. It was really hard. But it wasn't ever something where I like stepped away from climbing. Like when I actually did finally go see a doctor and they sent me to the hospital, stayed there overnight. Like I, my friend who came and picked me up, I was like, hey, can you drop me off at the gym on the way back? And he's like, I literally just picked you up from the hospital. Like the answer's no, but I, I just wanted to go climb. So true climber. Yeah. Very, very, very climber S. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So that's interesting. Okay. So. That happened then, and then this kind of, like, you were already segueing into climbing, so you already knew that you loved it, and yeah. you weren't willing to walk away from it, which, good on you. Um, so, when did you figure out what, what paraclimbing was, and when did you actually decide to start competing? So, I... Was, and why? Yeah, I was first introduced to the world of paraclimbing through Paradox Sports. Um, I was in communication with a lot of people involved with that organization, um, and like did some fundraising, did some work with them, but didn't ever like get fully involved myself. It was always something that was on the back of my mind, but either like, you know, USA climbing didn't have an open category that was actually, sorry, hold on. I hear my phone ringing. Sorry. I need to turn it off. Here sorry. I'm so sorry. So I could hear it at the microphone, and I was like, what is that noise? All right, ladies and gentlemen, I made a rookie mistake. I forgot to turn off my phone. I was so excited to talk to Michelle that uh, I went ahead and botched this. All right. All right. I cut you off. So we just used that as a commercial break. Great. Anyways, uh, continue. Yeah. So like I was saying, I didn't totally get plugged in myself like it was something in the back of my mind that I wanted to be involved in um but USA climbing didn't have an open category for a while and e even last year when they had the open category it was like okay you just get to climb some things but you don't actually like get points or there's no finals there's no podium and so well, what's the point exactly I was yeah. I was like I didn't know if I would actually classify because again I don't have a diagnosis and that can be a big hang up for people going through the classification process of if you don't actually know what's wrong like they, they, it can sometimes be hard. So I was like, okay, I want to compete, but there, it didn't really seem like there was a way to. And then this year, like, uh, USA climbing decided that they were going to formalize their open category a little bit more. And this was their first kind of test run on that and like create an actual category where we could compete, have qualifiers, finals, podium, like actually win a championship. Um, and so that was one thing I was like, okay, maybe it's time I start getting involved here. And then nationals was in Austin this year, meaning it was just a three hour drive for me. And so I didn't have to take any time off work because I'm working full time as a high school teacher and getting time off to just travel the country and climb. It's kind of hard. I get that summer, which is fantastic. Uh, but in the middle of the school year, I was like, well, since it's in Austin, I can just drive down after work Friday, compete Saturday, Sunday, drive back if I need to the next day and be totally fine there. So that was kind of the turning point was like, this is actually something I can do. So I decided to go ahead and do it. It is the, um, well, congratulations. You killed it. I was there screaming my head off. And uh, for if you guys want, for all you humans out there lovers and haters i will put the video that i recorded of her send at the finals route in the show notes um one thing that i don't think that myself and let's just call them normies for the lack of a better term because i don't know because that's what everybody else in the para group i know calls them uh or everybody else um the Not to be triggering, but how hard is it to get classified? Because it seems like this is like, it seems like this is one of the biggest hurdles for people to, to get if you're not, like if you're not in a wheelchair, if you're not 
wearing braces, you don't have braces, you don't have things that are like very physically obvious that people see. It seems, you know, or, you know, or some kind of something that's like physically obvious. It seems like it's very hard from what I've understand from what you've told me and other people have told me. And it also seems like from what we've talked to about from our, even our, our para athletes that we work with, like getting doctors to understand what they're supposed to do is also a challenge too. Because I think this is a world that like, I don't know about a lot. Like, and I know Grace, Ace has talked about it and Boss has talked about it, but like, like, what is the biggest, how is that a hurdle? Can you just kind of I mean, describe that? Even you were saying, even like, if you don't have something visibly obvious, but I have a good friend who uses a wheelchair 100% of the time, really can't walk. They have progressive ataxia, but they don't have a diagnosis behind it. And they didn't classify this year. What? At all. They totally thought they were going to be RP2 or RP1 and competed in open because when they handed their medical documentation to the person in charge of classification, the classifier's exact words were, this is just confusion. And the per- this guy's aide who went in with them was like, this isn't confusion. This is this person's life that they just handed you. And Oh, wow. That's fucked. It's like, then they just... Be like, nope, since you, yeah, you clearly have this progressive ataxia and ataxia is one of the qualifying conditions under RP. Um, but to have They didn't someone, have a why and so then didn't even classify and compete in an open. But to have someone just be like, your condition that you just handed me on a piece of paper is confusion. That's yeah. gotta be, I mean- that's emotional. I, yeah. I I was triggered just like hearing you yeah. say that. Like I'm emotionally upset. Like Yeah. Like this was someone who I had talked with a lot before nationals about this is why I'm not doing classification because I didn't want to deal with a lot of that. And they texted me after they're like, I thought of you when I went through this classification process and that's what they said, because you probably would have been in the same boat. Because in my case, yeah, it is confusing. We don't know why my body is doing the things that it's doing. So, and I, he, or they were not the only person I heard that from. Oh man, this um, is heavy. Who originally didn't get classified. Another good friend of mine um, from the same group, originally they didn't put her in a classification, put her in open. And she went to, I think, three or four different urgent cares that night to find another doctor who would sign off on her stuff try to go through classification again the next day in order to classify and ended up in RP2. So, oh, one, this is incredibly expensive. Yeah. Two, um, okay, sorry. I'm just trying to wrap my brain around this right now that the fact of the matter that they could go to multiple doctors and one doctor was like, no, one doctor was probably yes, maybe so. And then that's it. But it's like, I, it just, I guess in my brain, like, I don't understand why your primary care physician just can't do that. If you have a primary care physician. Some of it was their original doctor did sign off on it, but the classifiers wanted more and more. I don't know what, I don't know the whole situation, but well, I get they, that. But yeah. do they not provide exactly what kind of information they, do. they knew? But and, and then, so it's up to variation. It, so it's there's very a, subjective when it's supposed to be it an objective convoluted process. as hell. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I know several people who went through classification who really do meet those exact qualifications that are listed in the IFSC rule book and then didn't get classified and ended up in open. So, I mean, you know, this podcast is called Sends and Suffers, so it wouldn't be real if I didn't play devil's advocate here. But like. On the flip side of this, how easy is it for someone to just get in any category if they just come up with a documentation that say, like, I get that, like, I get that it's usually a combination of things. It's never just this one thing, because if that was the case, people would just get surgery or get pills to fix or whatever else or do whatever if it's not, because it's usually a combination of things that have caused uh, an issue. And so... Like, on the devil's advocate side of it, like, do you genuinely feel like the classifiers are 
being unfair to the individuals for the sake of protecting the sanctity of the category? Or is it really just like, or do you think that like it could be done better? I think the classifiers think they are trying to protect the sanctity of the categories, but they're not realizing that these are people's lives that they basically have full access to when they read this documentation. And yeah, not everyone's going to have the perfect textbook story, but if they meet those specific requirements that are listed in the rules, even if there's some other stuff that's maybe confusing or may not totally line up to what they believe to be true about different people's disabilities. Like I think, I mean, the rules say, for example, the first person I was talking about, yeah, ataxia is one of the qualifying conditions. It doesn't say you have to have this specific disorder that causes ataxia. Do you have to have, so when listening to what you say, the rules say ataxia is one of the qualifying things. Do you have to have more than just ataxia? Or is it this like sliding scale? I have one to five a level of ataxia. It's like, ataxia and then is one of the qualifying conditions. And then they do, they have to do a performative test on you to see like your level of disability. And if it affects X number of limbs, you're in RP3 versus all four limbs is RP1. But it like there is that kind of sliding scale. And that's why the RP category especially is really confusing. And that's where most of the things lie. Cause you know, when someone's missing a limb, it's pretty easy for the classifier to look and be like, yeah, you don't have an arm there. And that classification process is easier. It's still not great because they still will get on people for not submitting x-rays or anything. And They're missing an arm. <laughs> yeah. But you, you, you want an x-ray of my arm that's not there. Yes. I can draw a picture. <laughs> that's yeah. what I would have said. I, the, really? Yeah. Like I've had friends I've talked to who before the competition would get emails from, you know, the classification people being like, hey, like we need an x-ray to confirm this before we go into classification. They're like, can I not just show up and show you I'm missing a limb? And no, they they want the x-rays, they want the MRIs, they want the proof of it before they'll even see you in the classification. This has got to, there, I hopefully, and okay, and I also, I I just want to be clear, you, if anybody from USAC is listening to this, this is not to bash on you in any way, shape or form. This is just expressing frustration and expressing the genuine stories of the people who are basically traveling the country and working all year round and spending their hard earned money to go to an event that you are hosting. So I wanna be very clear when I say that. However, this is crazy. And I'm very curious, like, I wonder if this is partly the IFSC rules. I know someone who was a part of creating the classifications and that, and this might be a time to get him on this podcast and just kind of have a conversation about like, you know, the complexity that goes into it because this has to be more complex. Like it doesn't, like. Like asking for an x-ray when someone's actually missing an arm is stupid in my opinion. However, I do not run these events. I do not do these things and I don't understand. I do not have a medical background, nor I'm sure it's a cross between medical background, insurance and something else and of all of these things, which is the bane of our existence, which insurance is. But um, yeah, part of what I've heard about reasons why classification is becoming stricter is with Paralympics in 2028. We're in a competition with surfing to see which sport is going to be added to the Paralympics for 2028. And so they're trying to basically like solidify their classification process so that when they, you know, are making their pitch to the Olympic committee of like, Hey, these are the different medals we need to have space for because currently climbing has so many different classifications and they're trying to figure out how do we make this an approachable metal sport for Paralympics. That makes a lot of sense now because yeah. when you're dealing with the Olympic committee or the Olympic board, I've heard it's a monster. Yeah. It's a whole, it's a whole nother beast in itself. Wow. Wow. That's heavy. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that was a pill to swallow. Um, that's why I was part of 
really glad that I didn't even like attempt classification this year because I didn't have to because that that's traumatic for people. Oh no, and I can only like imagine. Not, so I was like not worrying about that this year. It was honestly, I believe it to be the right choice for me. So is there um, is there? I mean, are there doctors or organizations or if someone listening to this, please create this. But is there doctors, organizations or people who even volunteer their time or? who can do these classifications and kind of know what they're looking for and know what they're saying. So someone can go to them. And I understand not everything's a guarantee. Like I, I, I get that. Yeah. But there's gotta be at least someone who understands that one, you know, capitalism is the bane of all of our existence as well. But is there's a market here for people who need this help and or service. And is there anything out there like this? Or is it just kind of like, yeah, just, Find what you can find and hope your best. As far as I know, like I haven't heard of anything. Like there's very little support out there for paraclimbers in specific going through the classification process. I know some people who are part of specific adaptive climbing groups um, and organizations. Like they have people running those organizations who are at least familiar with the classification process and can help them. But there are also a lot of athletes who have none of that support and just get thrown into the classification with really no knowledge of what to expect or what they're going to be put through and then end up with a result that's totally unexpected for them. Uh, heavy. Well, okay. Uh, I feel like we can kind of do- dive down this rabbit of the classifications for quite a while because like, once again, this, this is just mind boggling to me, but let's talk about the actual climbing in itself. Like, so in your category, how did you feel about your roots? How did you feel about it? And you know, this also, a lot of grace has to be given to this because they don't know your category and because they don't know anything. So I feel like they kind of have to throw everything in the, they have to throw everything in the kitchen sink at you in for the routes that you get to climb during qualifier just to be able to watch you and figure out what you can and cannot do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, especially in the open category when there's, no criteria for entering like people could have all sorts of different disabilities i know in men's open too there was a climber who was missing a leg and could have definitely classified an au2 just decided not to go through that classification process and just compete in open this year and so there's such a wide range of different types of people um i was glad at least they separated open into two categories just by on-site grades so that they could have different difficulties of climbs but there definitely was a lot of variety in my category in women's open two and qualifiers, not a single person topped a single route. Like, Hmm. and then finals, I had the only top of the entire day of all categories on that route. So it was, Hmm. especially with the open category, it's definitely a learning process of what are these people actually able to climb? Um, A lot of us, I think, four out of five of us got to the exact same point on one of the qualifiers routes on Saturday. And we all got stuck at the exact same spot. And then the other routes, there was, was some more separation, but there were no tops in my category. There were some tops in RP3 on those same routes, but it's really hard to say when you don't know what these athletes can climb going into it. Cause it's very different from setting for an elite competition where you kind of have a feel for how strong these climbers are and what they're able to do on the wall but in adaptive climbing, it's very different. You have a lot of very different people with very different abilities and disabilities going into these competitions. So what do you think that makes for the future of the sport as a whole? Because it sounds like to me, it's like within the categories that are cla- people who fall within the classifications of certain categories, it sounds like, okay, just like, you know, your normie side of it, they're kind of getting a hang of like what's set, what needs to be set, who's coming back who are regulars and that's it. And then this open category is kind of a wild card. So once again, playing devil's advocate, do you feel like this open category is a good thing for paraclimbing as a whole, moving for the sport, moving forward? Or does this kind of jeopardize like the the kind of greater vision of it? You know? I mean, I think it's absolutely a good thing because there are a lot of climbers for whatever reason, either don't classify, don't choose to classify, but they should still be able to compete under paraclimbing. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, this year was kind of the first year of really having that set. And so it was, of course, going to be a learning process. They said that in the info sheet. They're like, this 
we're going to be observing everything with the open category this year so we can learn from it and start solidifying how we're going to do things in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so open is here to stay. Yeah. Okay. That's the goal. And okay. So that's something I'm really excited about, even though I don't necessarily want to forever could stay in open. I want to go through classification so I can compete internationally and all of that. Um, but it's still a great thing to have as an option and to grow that paraclimbing community. Nice. And so that's also something I guess like for our listeners to realize, like if you're not classified, you cannot compete internationally. You cannot compete at worlds and you don't have the opportunity to qualify for the Olympics. I'm assuming. Correct. That's rough. It kind of just you're nationals here. is a one and done. There's nothing before there's nothing after. Yeah, that's actually something that I've been really, it kind of boggles my mind. And I've talked a little bit to some of the route setters about this, but I definitely want to see it grow more. But it definitely bugs me that there's no qualifiers. It's something that's being talked about. I I get it. I get it. The market, I just don't, I don't know. It seemed like there was a lot of athletes there this year. This was the biggest year for paraclimbing by far. Like paraclimbing nationals used to just kind of be held in the, random side of a gym while another competition was happening it's like okay you guys can go over there and climb some things and we had over a hundred athletes competing this past weekend in austin so um, i is that do you think that is big enough to warrant having a qualifier because it still seems like a little small i mean you coach you and i coach together you know and i mean the jcca was a different animal but it was only local but you know we only had like what 40 kids in that thing yeah. back in the day. And now we're having close to like, you know, 175, 200 kids, which even still like taking yeah. it outside of taking out, taking it outside of Oklahoma, Texas, Oklahoma and Louisiana is still kind of like a stretch. Yeah. I think, I don't, I don't think we're there yet. Cause with, let's say we were at a hundred athletes in Austin this weekend. That's like two per state. If you divide it up and then where are you going to hold these qualifiers? Especially cause like that's a financial barrier as well. If you're going to make someone fly somewhere to qualify and then fly somewhere else for nationals and then fly somewhere else again for worlds, like that just adds another level of difficulty towards accessing these competitions for adaptive athletes. And I think this is also something to be said is, uh, you know, I, I don't think this is true for everybody, but is the question I'm asking you, is it more true or less true that most adaptive athletes uh, do not have m- as much access to resources to be able to get and travel. Because I think, you know, there's, there's, there's going to be someone who's saying, well, you know, everybody else has to travel to go to all these qualifiers. So why don't you? I think there's definitely some truth to the fact that it's harder for like adaptive athletes to access a lot of these things. Like traveling, you got to, especially, let's say you're in a wheelchair, you got to figure out transportation of that. You got to figure out where you're going to stay that's actually accessible. And then even just the financial side of things, a lot of people with disabilities have a hard time finding work that sustains them. Not only that, they've got all of these extra medical expenses or like for like adaptive material, like paying for wheelchairs or braces. It's a it's a lot. No, no, it adds up. So, it's not free. Yeah, it, it is not free to be disabled. And that's just, it, it sucks. <laughs> yeah, and it's more expensive in the long run. Yeah. Because I was recently, I saw something on social media that it's like, if you make too much money and yeah, you're adaptive, yeah. then you're like, you lose access to quite a bit of government aid yeah. and state aid. Yeah. Like I know people with disabilities who can't get married because when they marry someone, they lose their disability benefits. And it's just because of the amount of money that's in their household income and all that. It's a crazy world. And so there's definitely this difficulty of having athletes being even able to make it to these competitions or take time off work to get to these competitions. So I think adding another level of that would make it more inaccessible, which is the opposite of what we're trying to do in paraclimbing. That's wild. Yeah. I, when I saw that on social media, I was infuriated. I was just like, I, I, to me, it's like, it, it, I know this is probably a stretch and anyone who hears me say this is a stress, but I don't really care. But it's like, to me, it's like redlining. It's like 
some form of like old school redlining. If you're familiar with the term of redlining, are you? No. So redlining is basically when back in the day when segregation was obviously a practice, not just something that just so happened to be, but a practice. Uh, they would divide counties up and there would be a, a it's called redlining and black and minority families were not allowed banks. Banks would not approve loans. Counties lines would be drawn and voting distri- districts where money, school and education went to like for a prime example, like Richardson used to be an area that was redlined to. Uh, I, well, I've heard this and this is a st- statement that I've heard in the past. Now, I personally have never looked up the documents, but I've heard this a lot through just over the years. But Richardson used to be redlined and it was just, you know, black and brown and minority children were not allowed and or extremely encouraged not through through social barriers and just through cultural barriers and making sure those stigmas and barriers stayed in place that it was just not allowed, you know. And, you know, that's where you get the term, you know, white flight happens where people just once those once those barriers are dropped, all of a sudden they just run off and they go into other places. And we're kind of talking about two separate things here. But in my mind, like keeping that barrier there is a problem because especially if the person needs it. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, once again, like. This is a bigger existential problem, and it's a beautiful, a beautiful event is shining light on a bigger problem that has always been a problem. Mm-hmm. It's never, it's not new. It's not not new in any way, shape, or form. There is no new new here, but it's heavy. Yeah, it is heavy. Wow, Let's have to like let that sink in for a hot second. No, I mean it's it's wild, you yeah. know. If you think about it, it's like you're being penalized for something that you have no control over. I mean, you know, someone once again, I don't give a crap. That's why I say friends and enemies, lovers and haters in the beginning of this thing. But like, you're being penalized for being disabil- disabled. It's like you're being like, you know, it's like being penalized for being black, being penalized for being this, being penalized for being a woman, being mm-hmm. penalized for being gay or transgender or whatever it is. And if you don't listen to my podcast anymore for, based on what I just said, then goodbye and good riddance to you. Um, but um, yeah, it's just, it just sucks. It just really sucks. And it's funny, I'm like in my head, in my, my brain right now, I'm like, man, I need to like switch this conversation to a lighter note and make it happier. But like, I can't stop wrapping my brain around it because of how much it sucks because it's painful. And I like know the stigma and the pain of this in a different way. It's just hearing about it just manifested in a different way. And the worst part about this part thing in my brain, and I know I might be wrong in saying this, but the worst part about my brain of this is it's not because someone hates you. It's just because they're too freaking lazy to actually consider you and think about the benefits and think about the, si- the simple access that someone needs. Mm-hmm. And like, it's almost worse. Like, if you think about it, it's almost worse. Like, I'd rather you openly hate me and hate the color of my skin and hate me for who I am. Because then I know. But, like. Then to just not care enough to do anything about it. Not even care. Yeah, you're just, just forgotten. Yeah. Like, you just, like, you're invisible. And it's worse. Yeah. That is far worse. Being invisible is far, far, far worse. And it's completely messed up. And sadly to say, it is the world that we live in. And it's rough. Poop. That's, that's all I got to say. It's a bunch of caca. bunch of caca. But turning the page on that, uh, on that, which when I say turning the page, it's not done. There's more chapters to this. And, um, but one thing I would like to say, so you won nationals. Congratulations. Thanks. How does it feel? Really good. Tell it me. was like, one thing I learned, because this is my first time doing a competition in the style of qualifiers and then finals. And so, you know, I finished qualifiers in first, meaning I climbed last in finals. And then it just so happened that my category went very, very last. So I was the very last climber of the entire competition. Oh, that was pretty dope. And then having the only top of the route at the very, very end, like, you know, getting that top and you realize automatically, like, 
I just won a national championship. Whereas if, you know, I fell somewhere on the route, I'd come down and have to see how the other people did. But it was that very moment. It was like, well, there's, there's no doubt here. If we go back to countbacks, well, I, w- I was first in qualifiers, so that's it. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was a good feeling. Oh, uh, yeah, that's pretty awesome. I know. I, I was about to say, I didn't, I, I was screaming for you, but I tried to keep it on the minimum. And everybody else was just going nuts. Yeah. The room erupted when you grabbed the finish hold. It was it was a very, very, very beautiful moment. Yeah. I think another moment right after that that was very special. So I, I got that top and I turned to the judges just to confirm that, you know, I did in fact have the top before I let go. And the judge who gave me a thumbs up was one of the kids on Team Summit that I coach. Oh, I forgot it was Ben. It was Ben. Oh, and that's so, so cool. It was, and I came down and the very first thing I did after I got unclipped was I went and gave Ben just a huge hug. Because like I knew I would just won nationals. He was one of the judges on that route along with like four other people. And it was all caught on the live stream. And that is a video clip that is like incredibly special to me because that was just recorded permanently. Like yeah. that community that I've built just as a coach with my athletes and getting to share that with one of my athletes at nationals was honestly, it felt better than topping the route. Like just to be completely yeah. honest, it was really, really awesome. That's beautiful. Yeah. Oh man, that's awesome. I didn't even realize yeah, Ben walked up to me and he sent me uh, the photos of the tops and the separation. Yeah. And that's, Awesome. He was stoked for you. Yeah. He was stoked. I mean, I was, the whole room was, but it was, that was awesome. But yeah, I, like, that may honestly have been my favorite moment of the entire weekend was just like, I don't know. It's hard to explain how it felt, but it was just like seeing, you know, a, a kid that I have coached and that I've known and worked with over the past, I guess, year or so at the gym and getting to share that moment and like, have it recorded forever it's on youtube you can see it like it was pretty cool and so how was it being an athlete and you know you and i had a conversation a few months ago about uh stepping into the role as head coach for go beyond climbing the adaptive climbing group we've started here in dallas texas and so how was it stepping into that role and also competing at the same time like how did you juggle this Saturday was kind of a lot because I was competing at the same time as the athlete that I was coaching. And so I was working on, you know, focusing on my own climbs, but I was also making sure to go check in on on Grace to see how she was doing on her routes because it was her first competition, her first climbing competition ever. And like, so it was balancing a lot of that um, was kind of difficult to get in the right mind space to really be competing. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was also a super worthwhile venture. Like I am so proud and happy to be able to be head coach of this adaptive program. It's, I mean, it's super small now. The goal is to grow it and yep. just really have like a thriving adaptive community in DFW and perhaps even beyond. Cause I've worked with several other adaptive groups in the country and seeing the impact that they have on people is great. And so I actually went to a training camp with adaptive climbing group up in Chicago in mm-hmm. February and I went partly to get ready for nationals myself, but partly to see what can I bring back to Dallas and bring back to my athletes. And I did bring back a lot of stuff that I learned there. Um, and so it's a it's a role I've wanted for a while. Like when I was first interviewed at Summit, it's something oh, I, I mentioned we like two years this. ago. And it's like took a couple of years to get things figured out. And now that we're going, it's something that I'm very proud to be a part of. Yeah, no, I remember interviewing you for the job of head coach for homeschool and everything that you did. And it was something that you made very clear. And I told you, you know, we're starting an adaptive group. We've had it going for a little while. And yeah, it's just, there's there's been a lot of shifts over the years. And I think, you know, obviously, you know, at the peak of it, right before COVID, it was doing really well. And then kind of rebuilding it back then has been a hard thing. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I remember talking to Justine and Jane about it. Like, I, I mean, I've known you're the perfect person for the job, so I'm very excited that you yeah. stepped into this role and I'm very excited that you accepted it when I offered it. Cause I, I was, was so stoked. <laughs> oh, I, I knew you were, but I, I still had to be low key about it. Low key. But I was like, I was super excited and I am excited and I'm looking forward to watching you coach them in Salt Lake. Yeah. and continue to help this program grow. And it's been 
it's been something that's extremely important to me. And, uh, you know, you know everything that's happened with me with the TV show and traveling and doing different things like that. It's like I've kind of had to step into this role of really trying to figure out how to make money for the group and mm-hmm. start moving into fundraising. And if anybody is listening to this, know that, like, Probably by the end of this month or next month, our nonprofit will be fully up and running. We'll have a website and everything. And if you want to donate, know that all your money basically goes to making sure that this group has the resources and the means to get coaches, athletes. Well, first and foremost, athletes. Let me start first. Athletes and coaches. The resources that they need to be where they need to be and to compete. And for those for those athletes and coaches that need help. You know, we, so anything you want to donate, if you don't want to wait until then, uh, just reach out to me directly. Uh, you can go to mariostanley.com and then we'll have Go Beyond Climbing real soon up and running and you'll be able to go there too and just donate and help out. But um, I just wanted to throw that out there, but I'm excited. And I was wondering how that went, panned out that day. I figured it was going to be pretty stressful. Yeah, it, it was stressful. Um, I definitely like, I mean, Grace had other people there to support her as well. And so relying on the other volunteers and people involved with the program and just delegating with that was an important step for allowing me to have the space that I needed to compete myself. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also like as head coach, I know it's important to that for my athletes to be able to do the best they can. And so it was, it took, it took a little bit for me to find that balance, even just during that day. And then oh, once yeah. we had it going, it, it felt pretty good. And we, I think we, we both figured out what we were doing and how we were doing it. And we figured it out. So, so I, what's the next thing for you? I mean, you know, you're coaching, you're coaching, you're teaching, you're still climbing a lot. Like, do you have anything coming up that you're excited about within this realm that like you've got your eyes set on? And then what is the next goal for you with the team? Like, what are some things that you learned when you went to training camp that you want to bring into the team? Because I also imagine people who are listening to this might know people in their own area, and they are probably going to have to take some notes from this. But first and foremost, like, what's new for you around the horizon that you're excited about? Um, I mean, competition-wise, I'm excited to go to Salt Lake and just coach for World Cup there. I mean, like we said earlier with the open category, I can't compete, but I can coach. I can be involved. I can be around all those people that I love so dearly. Um, and then this summer, I have this nonsense climbing road trip planned. It's like a five-week trip because, um, you know, as a teacher, I get my summers off. Um, so we're taking like a month of the summer and driving either flying into Seattle, staying there a few weeks, and then driving down the West Coast or flipping that, driving up and flying back nice, nice. Um, with my friend Christian because um, his life goal is to hit all the state high points and do them as fast as possible. So we're just driving up and hitting as many states as possible, summiting those high points. I have a bunch of random climbing objectives planned, especially once we hit the Seattle leg of the trip and just having a good time outside for like five weeks before we have to return to actually being adults and working and all that. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. So, um, have you gone back and climbed a lot in the Seattle area since you started rock climbing? No, I, so I haven't been back to Seattle since pre pandemic. Oh, it's been a long time. Is that where all your family is too? No, nah, they're down here now. They moved right about the beginning of the pandemic. So which mm. is part of why I haven't been back. Um, I learned to track climb an index, which was fun. Place is rough. I, yeah, it was rough. Um, but that's, I think the only outdoors I've done in the Seattle area since I started climbing. Uh, wow. I mean, well, one, you went hard. That place yeah. is rough. Yeah. Like the place puts hair on you wherever you need it to grow. Yeah. So, so I'm excited to go back and do a lot more. Nice. So, yeah. And then what was the, what is the thing that you learned the most from your time at training camp? Now that you, you are bringing back to the team here. A lot of it was just, preparation for competition and the style of competition and so I incorporated that into our few practices that we had before nationals Um, we had like two practices so wasn't a lot of time to actually get ready now we got a lot of time before worlds world cup in salt lake where we can actually get some things going Um, but we did like a mock comp of the qualification round which like we said earlier three routes Mm -hmm. three hours so I gave my athlete two routes two hours and just practicing that time management and route reading and figuring out how do I 
handle myself during those two hours because that's a lot of time. Like you're not climbing for two hours straight. You no, got to figure no. out how to rest. I didn't even use all my attempts on, during qualifiers. No, you <laughs> should never use all your yeah. attempts. People who burn through them all are just like full force. Yeah, so it's just it. practicing that because like if you go into a competition and not ever have felt what that feels like, then yeah, you're going to burn all your attempts and you're going to be exhausted and not do your best and then have an hour left with absolutely nothing to do. Um, I've, I've seen it happen. And so we did one mock competition of that, and then we did a mock round of finals, which is just on-site. And honestly, one thing I really emphasized was the belay system, because with paraclimbing, when you're, they're on overhang, they often have a, a double belay. So one basically on a lead mm -hmm. belay, one on a top rope, which just helps reduce the swing when falling, because a lot of adaptive athletes, there's a lot more risk involved when they're taking hard falls. And so we just minimizing that for those athletes. So... The first time I climbed on that system was weird because I was like, there's this extra rope in the way. Like I working, a, I'm not going to lie. It scares me. Like, like sometimes when I watch it. it. Yeah. And it, so I was like, okay, this is something I got to practice with my athletes before we get there just so it's not like totally new when you're actually in the middle of a competition. Um, and then after nationals, I was talking with Grace like, hey, what are you, some things that you wish we could have worked on more? What are some things you want to work on before Salt Lake in May? And it was more just getting used to that competition style of routes, which isn't something we really had time to think about before. But a lot of what we practice on were nice, juggy, easy routes because that was what the athletes I was working on were comfortable with. But nationals and worlds are not going to be comfortable necessarily. And so it's like getting comfortable on different types of holds and harder types of movements so that when you actually have to do it for first time like in competition it's not actually the first time for you was it the holds like are they more fiberglass are they just bad holds small holds or is it more so the movement because i think that's one thing that i notice a lot too it's like i noticed for me watching a few of the categories uh in the spectator realm when i came out of iso um some of the holds didn't look so much bad, especially for like Grace and our athletes that we have, me knowing their abilities. But the movement, yeah, the movement is like like some of those moves. I was like, that, I mean, that's kind of real. Yeah. There was a couple. There was a couple moves. I was like, this is pretty savage of a move. You know, the holds didn't look terrible, and so I guess like, what do you see? Is it either or? And yeah. Either. Yeah. I mean, a little bit of both, but I think definitely more on the movement side because competition setting of routes is very different from what you often see standardly set in a commercial climbing gym. And so finding ways to still train those movements in a commercial gym can be difficult, mm -hmm. um, especially for athletes who may not be able to get on boulders because, you know, on boulders, yeah, you'll see a lot of those same sort of movements that you're going to see on routes that are at nationals and such that would be on top rope, but you're not going to see them just normally set in the gym. Uh, and so some of that's like having conversations with the gyms that you're at and be like, mm -hmm. these are the types of things that we need set for this type of athlete. Um, something I've seen a lot of discussion about is having gyms set more overhung routes that can be campused for climbers who don't have use of their legs and just campus everything. But you don't often see the super easy juggy routes on the overhung part of the wall. Whereas you don't want to be campusing up slab. No. So just having even these commercial gyms, having their route setters be familiar with these are the different types of people that may be coming through our gym. These are the types of things that they are preparing for. How can we incorporate this style of route setting into our commercial gym setting i think it's important yeah no i think that's a that's a question and that's something that you and i are both gonna have to make an appointment with tucker yeah. and kind of sit down and tackle about when they can have this set and in the rotation and hopefully have maybe something spread out between he plano and grapevine yeah yeah yeah, uh, yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah, that's something that's just been on the back of my mind for a while. But after nationals, it's much more on the forefront of my mind. Yeah, I think to a certain extent, and we've talked about this in our meetings, at our, in our team meetings with Go Beyond Climbing. Mm -hmm. Like, we're just finally actually going through a full year. I think, like, we've been really in this mode of, like, let's just have meetups. Let's just have meetups. And I'm going to be very clear. It has been me holding the reins back and holding the chains back a lot on that. Um, and just not letting this, you know, not letting all you ladies just run loose 
and just go for it because you know i've i've truly felt like we know what we want we know where we're trying to go but what we haven't seen is anybody else do it and we haven't seen any other organizations or seen the top level tier stuff enough of us have not seen it and i feel like now we're finally in a place where we have enough of an infrastructure, we have enough of a team, we have enough of everything to kind of really actually start kind of moving forward and like, you know, getting out of second gear and moving into third and four. Yeah. And I think that's been a big challenge lately, just kind of figuring out like, because, you know, I, I think you've heard me say this. It's like the big thing is, is like, this is not about us, this is about you and the rest of the athletes. Yeah. And so like, how do we create this in a way where like, you and the rest of the athletes truly do feel supported and truly do feel like, okay, like, like, it's like a good belayer. Yeah. I don't want you to think, you should even know that I exist. The rope should feel like a magic carpet ride. It should feel just magical, like things are just happening. And how, as we as a team can be that. And I think we're learning, we're moving forward, but not quite. It, it, it wasn't quite there. Now we're at a point where we can start moving into this authority and stepping into this power. Mm-hmm. So it's been a big deal. Uh, so I guess this, um, sorry, my brain is, my brain is slightly blanking. I keep on going back to the whole classification thing in my head. Like it's this, it's this earworm that is really up there. Um, so you, we've got nationals coming around the corner. We've got uh, a few bit from bit of athletes coming in. I think really like the next thing is, is what do you see? What would be the best thing that you believe to help the group grow? What would be the best thing to help you become? What would help you coach better and help you? What, let's start over this. What do you believe is the best way to help our program grow and to help you become the best coach that you can be? Like what support do you need? What are the things that, you know, I mean, I know we need more awareness and I'm hoping this podcast helps with that. Yeah. But like, what do you envision that we need? Because you're, I mean, you're pretty much now along the tip of the spear here in this whole thing now. Yeah, I think a big thing yeah, you mentioned the awareness. I think just having more athletes, more numbers will help because then it really starts to be like a team. Right now, it's it's two athletes who are competing. And yeah, we have a lot more who come to our meetups and such. But getting ready for a competition se- series and season, especially as like we go through World Cups this year and then into Nationals and World Cups next year, like I want to have more athletes because then we can work together, figure things out and just grow that community Mm -hmm. and it also makes once you have more people involved it makes joining a little less scary yeah it's like right now it's like oh i gotta take that leap of faith like oh i'm going to become a competition rock climber like that can be scary for people like that's a huge step when you go from sometimes even people like i don't even think climbing something i can do to be like i'm gonna go compete at nationals like that that's a big thing so like just decreasing that fear factor of being like no like this is something that anyone can go and do if that's what you want to do um like ideally i want to be able to like put on a training camp like some of these other Mm -hmm. programs do and then see like even get people traveling from around the country to come to to our training camp like how i was able to go to another group's training camp and just like grow that community um i know something that voss and i were talking about with summit in particular was getting an adaptive category at some of these competitions uh, especially whips and clips, which is can all be done on top rope. Because as of right now, we have four summit athletes who went to nationals and many more summit adaptive athletes who I think would be a lot more willing to try a competition if it was something at a lesser level like whips and clips or SBS or anything else that summit puts on. Uh, so having accessible competitions that are local, that are a lot less scary sounding than nationals would be something that would really help. I think that's definitely the truth. I think having uh, that was something actually I was when I saw Voss climbing at whips and clips and I saw you there, I was like, this is definitely something that was in my back of my head. I was like, would it be possible to do it here? And the answer is yes. Yes. We've 
talked briefly with people higher up about, hey, this is something we want to make happen next year. Because uh, with, with Nat, who sets at Oklahoma for Summit, and he was down here competing in whips and clips, and then again, it won RP3 at Nationals, and then me and Grace and Voss. And I know there's so many more people that I probably don't even know that would be able to compete in this that we should open up a category and make that possible. Yeah. I know I 100% agree with you. One thing I was thinking of when you said the the awareness and I know I probably sound crazy when I do this, but like and this is something the largest of our listener base who's listening to this podcast podcast is in Texas. So I'm going to ask everyone listening this right now. I'm going to ask you for a very solid favor. And I'm, what I'm probably asking you to do is single-handedly the most scary, uncomfortable, and awkward thing to do. But I do this. If you're ever out and you see somebody who is adaptive or is handicapped in whatever way, shape, or form, invite someone to come climbing. Invite them to our meetups. They're the, the, the third Friday of every month at Summit Plano. And I know it sounds really weird, but look at it this way. You could hand them a flyer and you could just kind of tell someone about it. But if someone says, oh, yeah, there's a party happening. And then you want to go and they're like, yeah, everybody's welcome. Or, hey, I'm having a party and I'd really love for you to come. There's this event that's happening. I don't know if I'll be there right away, but I think this is something you might like. I don't know you. We've never met before, but I wanted to share this with you. And I think the big thing is, is whether you... You kind of got to get out of your own head. Get out of your own head and stop thinking whether you know what their experience is going to be like or how they're going to feel. Because at the end of the day, I think what people want is choices. Mm -hmm. And so I think one thing to help this awareness of this podcast grow is I'm going to call on the power of the people listening to this. And my request is if you see someone or if you know someone or you knew someone, invite them. And then come to Summit Plano. We have a volunteer training program. We'll run you through a quick day. Once you show up, show a little early, we'll teach you how to volunteer. And sometimes we have more volunteers than we have athletes. And sometimes we have more athletes than we have volunteers. And sometimes it's an even mix. But what matters the most is that we're all here and we're all just hanging out and we're climbing. And it's a big, rambunctious family. And it is a family. It's a very, very tight-knit family. Absolutely. I was talking to um, another coach, actually, not based out of Texas, uh, but he gets very involved with the paraclimbing community. And he was talking about how he started getting involved with the paraclimbing community is not because he's an adaptive climber, but he's trans and realized that the adaptive community is probably the most welcoming space you could ever find because we all know that we're all very different people and we all come from very different walks of life, whether it's with our gender identities, sexual identities, race, uh, disability, any of that. We don't care. Just come show up and rock climb. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things like it, whether or not you have a disability, like if you just show up to these meetups, you can help out, you can volunteer, you can be involved in this community without necessarily being an adaptive climber. And that's what's going to help bring in those adaptive climbers too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's power is in numbers here. Power is in it. In as much as I hate to say it, but we both kind of said it. It's kind of a numbers game, and that's really what it is right now. So, hold on one second, my my watch was making a bunch of random noise. Um, yeah, it, it kind of is a numbers game right now, and we really need this thing to grow. And it's beautiful. It really is yeah. a beautiful group. It's a very loving, quirky. It is a very quirky group. That that is probably the best word to say. Um, Michelle, if people want to support you and people want to follow you, how can they do that? I mean, at this point, just following along. Um, I have my Instagram. I finally put together a climbing Instagram so I can keep my other one private because as a teacher, because. I don't necessarily want all my students seeing everything, but yep. my, my climbing stuff, they can see. Um, so it's just MPAT10 climbs. Um, I'm starting just keep a log there of just my climbing. A lot of it's going to be related to the adaptive climbing world, stuff with the meetup, stuff with the team. Um, so following along there, just when we do get the nonprofit up and running, just supporting in any way that you can. Because uh, a big thing is getting 
us athletes and coaches to competitions. Like that's not cheap. No. Uh, like m- one of my biggest holdbacks about going to Salt Lake was like, can I even afford to get there? And like, especially next year, if I mean, eventually my goal is to start competing internationally and mm-hmm. that that's going to take some money and like being able to have what we need to get our athletes and coaches and myself where we need to be to achieve the goals that we want. Like that's going to be super important. Agreed. Agreed. And also to once we get this thing up and even before we get up with that money is definitely something to help out. But there's also a lot of other things you can do besides money. Be creative, be crafty, you know, just share just, like anywhere uh, you can. About honestly, it. that's the best thing yeah. you could have ever said. Like just share in any way where you can in any way, shape or form you can like yeah. whatever your resources is. And for me, it's like my time and my ability to do things like this, um, you know, and it, whatever that is to you. But yeah, definitely. Well, I want to thank you for coming. I want to thanks for your time. I look forward to continuing this conversation. And uh, I want to talk to you about future podcasts that we're going to do right after this. But Absolutely. I appreciate you and I love you dearly. And I think you're an amazing human being. Thanks. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Michelle Patton. She is a human being that I love immensely. And I am so excited to watch her future as an athlete, as a coach, as an educator, as in all the things she does. If you haven't already, please support Sense and Suffers podcast. Check us out on Patreon. Check us out on Instagram on all the things, click, like, follow, subscribe on your listening platforms, all of those things through us wonders. Once again, thank you for listening. And remember, if you're not suffering, are you even sending at all? You gotta ask yourself, was the send equal to the suffer? Was the suffer equal to the send? I don't know, maybe I'm philosophizing too much, but all I know is if you're not suffering a little bit, that send is not as sweet. Until next time.